0: If we don't have a partnership or collaboration between the private sector and the public sector, we will not succeed. We will not build more resilient cities. We will not build safer cities. We will not
1: build healthier cities. So that collaboration is really critical. You're listening to Shaping Sustainable Places, a new Skanska podcast. We're here to recognize, encourage, and inspire stakeholders in the industry and beyond to accelerate the transition to a more sustainable, resilient, zero-carbon-built environment. In each episode, we'll be speaking with industry and civic leaders, policymakers, and other champions of change to explore innovative solutions to real challenges. Already, climate change is having serious impact on cities around the world. In the coming decades, building resilience will be an essential part of urban policy. Cities and towns will need to adapt to protect their residents, and they'll need help. So how can we work together to reduce emissions, build better, and shape truly sustainable cities? Today, our host Heather Clancy sits down with industry and civic experts to discuss the importance of knowledge and best practice sharing, industry-wide rating tools and certifications, as well as the impact of global advocacy associations, councils, and more, demonstrating that we can achieve more when we join forces. She begins with Claire DeBrier, Executive Vice President and Regional Manager for Skanska USA Commercial Development's Los Angeles region, and the Executive Committee Chair for the Americas region of the Urban Land Institute, or ULI. There are currently three dedicated ULI regions, the Americas, Asia, and the UK and Europe, making it a global organization. Claire and Heather discussed the ULI's work and how the Institute utilizes networks and collaboration to really make a difference.
0: A lot of my education came through ULI and the partners that we have at ULI. So we partner with not only the U.S. Green Building Council, but we partner with the World Building Council. We partner Mm -hmm. with the Rocky Mountain Institute. There are so many organizations that are looking at building resiliency and sustainability in the built environment. And we do a lot of partnering with other nonprofits that focus on healthcare or that focus on really building healthy places. And looking at that from the context of even how wide a street is can impact the ability for people to access a park or access healthcare or access a school. And So it's literally everything from the width of a street that can have a material impact on a community's health. And I think as we partner with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supported our Building Healthy Quarters research, and we really had some wonderful takeaways from the research that we did. We have 10 things not to do if you're designing a city and 10 things You really should do when you're building a city and laying out developments. And a lot of this now is incumbent upon the city setting these standards and then the private sector implementing them. It's been
2: fantastic. So what are you working on as part of the executive committee at ULI?
0: Oh, there's a lot we're working on. The Urban Land Institute's mission is to shape the future of the built environment for transformative impact in cities worldwide. So we are definitely a global organization. We have three mission priorities. Those are decarbonization and net zero in the built environment, educating the new generation of diverse leaders, and finding solutions for affordable housing and housing attainability
2: just to stick with this collaboration theme and region to region, city to city, can you tell me a little bit more about the sort of framework for doing so? And also, since you have such a strong focus on education, how are you partnering with universities and architectural schools and people where people get their degrees in this sort of thing? How does that work? Skanska is
0: very engaged with ULI and all five of its regions in the United States. And we have members of ULI in Our commercial development offices and commercial development in the Nordics, in Europe, and in the UK. So we have members of ULI active all over Europe and all over the US. And those are sustainability teams in particular because Skanska globally is a member of this Greenprint program that I mentioned. We all report into Greenprint and focus on sharing information on how our buildings are performing to ensure that we are meeting our decarbonization goals. We have some of the biggest developers in the US and property owners across the world are members of Greenprint and they're all doing the same thing. And I think that gives a level of ownership to the organizations that are involved to really focus on Not only working to fulfill those goals, but more importantly, to share that information out about how they're actually fulfilling those goals and how they're meeting their goals that they're setting forth. And I think that sharing of information and having that focus on that reporting is really important because it's leading the way for others to join. The goal would be to have Greenprint have, right now it's 74 companies, 174 companies in a year, 574 companies in the next five years. The more organizations and the more square footage we put under this, the more accountability there is towards meeting those sustainability goals. As it relates to how we reach out to college students, we have a number of programs. One of them is the urban plan that I mentioned, and that we do with both high school and college students. That's a program where we go into urban environments. Disadvantaged parts of the city where there's not necessarily a good understanding of all the areas that you can participate in real estate. We teach the general program of this is what a developer does. These are all the pieces and parts that go into assessing a site for development. This is the city process you have to go through. This is the planning process. This is what a financial model looks like. These are all the people who are engaged in that whole arc of a development. And then we go in and we say, Here's a corner site, or here's a mid block site, or here's a vacant building that's in your community. What do you want to see there? How would you do the community outreach? What's allowed for zoning? How would that work from a financial standpoint? And we have members of ULI who are giving their time to walk these students through understanding how that process works in a real world example that's in their community. So that's urban plan. And that's actually being engaged in all over the world as well.
2: So one of the big themes of city planning and city needs is resilience and obviously being climate resilient. So can you speak about the political drivers and business drivers in implementing those solutions? Talk more about the government relationships that you have, if you will, if government is the right word. You've got an agenda and they've got an agenda. How do they meet and how can they serve each other? I think the
0: best role that our government can do is to set these lofty goals for us. And I'll use the city of Los Angeles by way of example. So the city sets this lofty goal of every new building has to be net zero carbon, has to be electrified by 2030. They set this goal. They don't necessarily say how you're supposed to do it but they set this lofty goal. And then in the best cases, the role of the government should be that they then get out of their way and let you figure out how to do it and then adopt what you're doing. So we have a project that we've been designing that's in downtown Los Angeles in the arts district. And we've been partnering with the city of Los Angeles from day one. And that's all departments with the city. That's the head of sustainability for the city, but that's also working with the department of water and power and working with the fire department, and really looking at what are the best practices we can employ to design a truly net zero building. And partnering with the city to say, hey, here's what we're thinking about doing. How can you help us do this? Or what do we need to do to make this happen? And saying, hey, we found out this great low carbon concrete that we really want to use, but it needs to take a little longer to cure. Can we have extra time for the pores?" Can we extend the time out for the pour so that we can have a longer time period to use this low carbon concrete? And so the role of the government should be, you know, in this case, it would be the city it would be like, yes, we can extend the time period for you to pour the concrete. If you're using this low carbon concrete and figure out mm-hmm. incentives for having people employ these best practices, make it easy on the developer to figure out the way to reach those cities lofty goals. And I think When you have a city like the city of LA, who's completely focused on setting this goal and doing everything it can to achieve it, you can really have some very innovative solutions develop and become best practice and then become standardized. And I think that's when we see the cities acting like that, that's really when we can have real success and have real impact.
2: So that's a great, the Los Angeles example is a great one. Can you point to any other initiatives or solutions that are being introduced in buildings that could have a similar positive impact? Oh, absolutely.
0: I'm using Los Angeles because that's my region, but both Boston and Seattle have the same net zero goals that the city of LA has. And it's interesting. They're focusing on different things in Los Angeles, for instance, we have the ability to have a lot of indoor-outdoor space and have passively conditioned spaces because we have a very unique climate. And we're looking at doing different things in different municipalities. And each one of them has their own unique set of areas that they're really focused on. It really depends on that unique climate and what those municipalities are doing. When we were building the Bank of America Tower in Houston, we had the goal to have it be largest, greenest building ever built, which it was at the time that we built it. And the city of Houston really partnered with us to help
1: us do that. The city of Houston was built on oil and gas, but the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, has been working hard to move away from fossil fuels and toward a more sustainable future. Houston is located on the Gulf Coast and as a result, is constantly faced with natural disasters like heavy rains, flooding, and hurricanes. In the hopes of protecting his city and its residents, Mayor Turner is an active member of a global network of mayors that are working toward climate resiliency called C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group, which we've actually highlighted in a previous episode entitled Building the Cities of Tomorrow during our conversation with Mark Watts, the Executive Director of C40. Mayor Turner is also a member of the Urban Flooding Network and the Climate Action Mayors, as well as many other associations. Heather had the opportunity to chat with Mayor Turner about the importance of collaboration and working together to build more resilient cities and everything that he has learned from his fellow mayors across the globe.
2: Why is it important for you to be part of these organizations? What have you learned from these other cities and administrators and mayors and so forth?
3: We learn from each other. Frankly, I was at the United States Conference of Mayors when it was held in Boston years ago. And there was a presentation from a mayor in a city in Massachusetts, how they had taken, in this case, I think it was 40 acres that were contaminated from a landfill and turned it into a solar farm. And it just stuck in my head. I just said, hey, that works. I like that idea. And brought it back to Houston and said to my team, in working through C40, Let's put out some proposals. And one of the proposals we just want to throw out is maybe turning the Sunnyside landfill into a solar farm. In Massachusetts case, it was 40. This is 240 acres. Let's see whether or not there are any takers on this. So mayors learn from one another. We learn from one another. And when it comes to electrification of our fleet, it was Mayor Gassetti in L.A. who had this electric co-op purchasing agreement. The city of Houston participated in that agreement, in that purchasing agreement on electrification of vehicles. So we borrowed from a structure that he had put in place. And so it works. Being board chair of the Global Resilient Cities Network, what we are facing is happening all over the world. And so we take ideas from one another. There's a task force of mayors that I put together, global mayors, in which we come together and discuss innovative things that they are doing in our respective cities that we may be able to duplicate. And in, in being mayors, there is nothing wrong with duplication. In fact, it's a good thing. We take what others have done that's working well in their cities and then we customize it for it to work in ours. So it's working hand in hand. And then with the Global Resilient Cities Network, we've come up with this scorecard because in order to get the private sector to invest in projects in your city, you have to kind of weigh the risks and have bankable projects. So we've come up with a scorecard called Resilience Infrastructure Diversity Equity Analysis. And we help other cities to come up with bankable projects. And so presenting them now to the private sectors, you will be presenting them to a bank. You're doing everything you can to cut down on the risk in order to incentivize them to invest. Well, we're taking that that ride scorecard all around the world and saying, you you just can't go to the private sector and ask them to give you money on a project if it's not bankable. You may think it's a good idea, but your risks are too doggone high and they're not going to come in. And then we've said to them, look, cities don't have enough money to do it. You're not going to always be able to get money from the state or the federal government. So these private collaboratives, they work, but they have to be projects that make sense. They have to be projects that are bankable and they have to be sustainable and long lasting. And if to the extent you can, we can do that, then it becomes a win-win. And we learned that from working with the network And so it's been beneficial for me to be with U.S. climate mayors, U.S. of mayors, C40, urban mayors, the global Resilient network. It builds an ecosystem that becomes very, very effective. And I will close by simply saying relationships matter.
1: Mayor Turner said it best. Relationships matter. Before we move on to our next guest, Heather turns back to Claire to learn more about the ways that collaboration between cities and organizations like ULI is spreading and helping to scale their many initiatives around the world.
0: If we don't have a partnership or collaboration between the private sector and the public sector, we will not succeed. We will not build more resilient cities. We will not build safer cities. We will not build healthier cities. So that collaboration is really critical. On the positive side, and this is globally, we have actually seen cities, countries, municipalities, the public sector, even our transit agencies, all stepping up and setting goals and providing incentives for developers to be able to meet those goals and achieve those goals. And when you have the collaboration, between the private sector and the public sector solving problems. And you have organizations like the Urban Land Institute or the U.S. Green Building Institute or the American Association of Architects. There's so many organizations that are both private sector, public sector, and the nonprofit sector all coming together to solve these problems. You end up having really innovative solutions come up. And then our job as ULI or the USGBC or the AIA is to make sure that that information gets shared and those best practices get shared. So that it's probably being led by the larger municipalities and then distributed and shared to all of the smaller ones. And that takes time, but you'll get there. A great example is when the USGBC created lead standard for sustainable building. And now granted, that focus on one thing that focused on the sustainability of the materials that you're using to build buildings. But that sustainability goal setting and that sort of wow, this is something that everybody's gonna look at. This is a standard by which we can all compare each other. That has been adopted by so many cities. Lead silver is a standard for most cities in their building codes. So we were really, as a public-private partnership, we were able to drive at least thinking about and having measurable requirements for greener building. And if we can do that with resiliency and with well-building and really have those standards and decarbonization, obviously that's critical, but that's already in play. The more we can start to have those standards become standardized, and then shared as being a standard practice, the more dramatic and amplified that
1: impact can be. A partnership between the public and private sectors is crucial. As Claire mentions, we won't succeed without it. Another organization that is working toward bridging that gap between these two areas is the World Green Building Council or WGBC. Heather sits down with the organization's CEO, Christina Gamboa, to talk about the initiatives that the WGBC is advocating, like the Net Zero Building Commitment and Better Places for People program, and the progress they're making so far, as well as how circularity fits into their strategies.
2: Tell us a little bit more about the mission of the World Green Building Council.
4: So the World Green Building Council is the largest local, regional, global network that is accelerating decarbonization and sustainability in the built environment. We work together with over 75 national green building councils from all around the world and our partners to drive systemic change at scale and trying to put people first in the decision making.
2: One thing that you are championing is the net zero carbon buildings commitment. Walk us through the commitment and some of the approaches that the signatories are taking in order to meet it.
4: Yes, of course, and I guess net zero is part also of an integrated approach to delivering quality infrastructure. So the net zero carbon buildings commitment talks about a whole life carbon approach to decarbonization, but I just want to clarify that since we're such a large network and the integrated approach means that that also involves resiliency, healthy buildings, equity, there's much more to it, but now we're understanding that this is the imperative, right? We're starting through the energy side. So the net zero carbon buildings commitment is inspiring businesses, cities, and governments to take leadership in terms of decarbonization and accelerated change by 2030. So right now we have over 171 signatories, which include 136 businesses, 29 cities and six states and regions, and they collectively have 20,000 assets. So what they're doing is making sure that they are advancing a whole life carbon approach in those that have building portfolios, for example, businesses, cities, enabling regulation that they have all new assets operating at better standards by 2030, and also committing to decarbonizing their own asset and portfolios. So this initiative is recognized as a breakthrough initiative of the high-level climate champions Breakthrough Agenda and the Race to Zero campaign, because it's frontrunner action. It shows the vision of the possible now, rather than waiting for the 2030 to be here. How
2: much progress has been made? What would you say has been the most notable success of this commitment so far?
4: So I think one of the most important things is that it is recognized in its seriousness of how it's advancing this concept at the level of the race to zero, that would be one. But the signatories have started the reporting progress now. This has precisely been it, finding people and businesses that want to champion that cost and go deeper now. And so for example, developers that are electrifying buildings now powered by renewables, maximizing embodied carbon reduction. So showcasing now that it is viable. And I think that's priceless. And In in our website, you can see all those case studies from very serious firms, but across all continents, Heather, it's not really a barrier. Second, you also see large-scale asset owners upgrading and retrofitting current assets. So the retrofit challenge, the most sustainable building is the one that exists. We now know that the decision-making process has to make a case for it. If we have assets, they have a carbon debt to pay, (laughs) so it's better to retrofit now, and they are securing renewables, electrifying, and bringing best practice to another level. And of course, when it comes to sustainable finance, we also have signatories from the finance sector, which are showing how green leases, green procurement policies, green loans, mortgages, and many innovations in financial instruments can scale up this best practice. I think the main success has been deep collaboration and industry sector that is willing to showcase and invest in advancing the zero now, but going deep in what that means and sharing best practice so others can do the same. Quite a lot of diverse
2: stakeholders involved there. So how does your organization engage with those stakeholders? What's the roadmap for that?
4: So there's different roadmaps because industry, we're talking about the infrastructure sector is a local non-tradable industry, but it does have global principles and imperatives that facilitate the conversation, making sure that it is locally relevant and climate relevant and culturally relevant. So the Green Building Councils have several tools that they deploy being conveners of this wide range of stakeholders that compress the built environment ecosystem Principally, for example, they do, of course, a lot of advocacy, education, trainings, and best practice. Their figures are in the thousands trained every year. They also do provide principles, research, and guidance. But importantly, like 60% of them provide tools, rating tools, or certifications that show the industry what really performance-based better buildings look like. Addressing, let's say, those challenges that we know about integrating all those solutions from architecture, engineering, promoting transparency, disclosure at a very high level. And it makes a case for leadership and that activates also and inspires regulators and brings confidence that it is possible it doesn't have to be more costly when there's more scale, more demand, more markets created. Of the
2: different practices that you mentioned before, training and sharing data and so forth, the approaches that your signatories and participants are advancing, what has been the most effective one so far?
4: I think at this point where we are, the most effective one from those tools has been industry knowledge sharing. So we have at different, let's say, levels of the work of WorldGPC, for example, we've seen in Asia Pacific where Net Zero didn't have an uptake two years ago. We have a net zero readiness framework that has been now enabling awareness in embodied carbon, operational, and now there's more buy-in in a region that was apprehensive, but because of lack of knowledge. Now that's advancing. In Africa, at COP27, 15 African GPCs collaborated on an African manifesto for sustainable cities, and they came up to the standard of saying, we are going to promote net zero so that they're leapfrogging and understanding what works, making it relevant to their context, and so advancing it through that knowledge sharing. And I guess also the other part is through collaboration with other NGOs. It's not only World GBC. So we've collaborated with NGOs where we brought in accelerators that they may have. And so we're not here to duplicate knowledge or asset. We're just here to promote that everyone does their part through sharing of those principles that I was mentioning and enabling relevant actors to make it locally relevant and practical to their geographies, constituencies, and realities of the sector. So we
2: know collaboration is difficult. It's required in this space. What are the biggest challenges of addressing this and how do you get around them?
4: I believe for me, I've been championing this year a lot about transparency and data when we see the reports of the gaps in emissions, the emissions gap, or all the reports that are looking at what's the impact of different sectors, recurrently the built environment sometimes has a lack of information. And so I think making sure that governments, for example, require voluntary disclosure of data will make them eventually be having more information to drive home better policies, better codes, performance-based energy codes that can improve the situation, for example. So that's one. The second, I would say it's about building confidence that these social value, for example, that I was talking about does actually make a business sense. It's not only the right thing to do, it makes business sense. And so that's why at WGBC, we publish the reports, we collaborate on the principles and we use our credibility to showcase through true examples that it is viable and it is, let's say, the no-nonsense way to go. Because eventually, I'm an economist, right? And if I would be speaking to an investor, I would say, if you are not addressing risk in the built environment, which is risk related to climate, risks of the transition of the energy transition, those risks will be eventually stranded assets. Those portfolios, will not be attractive to investors as we step up the disclosure of data of their performance.
2: The Better Places for People program. Let's talk a little bit about that initiative. What is the goal? It seems to really sit at the place of the intersection of healthy buildings and green buildings. Tell us more about why that's an important crossover.
4: So at World Green Building Council, we define that sustainability in the built environment needs to cover three areas of action. Climate action health equity and resilience, and resources and circularity. So in health equity and resilience, we have the Better Places for People program. And that's realizing that a sustainable building means it's a healthy building too. It means that those attributes of better indoor air quality, better lighting, materials that are not hazardous to our health, making sure that buildings are saving water, energy, making them more affordable for family, for homes who have more money to address other needs of their household, is a better place for people. So that healthy angle of sustainability in the built environment has been a good lever to also bring in a lot of people' interests into what does good look like and really address social issues. And or explain that best practice also is addressing social issues, not only environmental. And I think that's the program has been doing just that. And now going also into the heart of the need to get deeper into homes and campaign also possibly for those invisible actors like informal settlements. And that's a topic that we've been working on recently.
2: I'm going to go next to one of the things that you said early on, which was to talk about the importance of retrofitting and obviously using the buildings we have already in a better, different way, which really applies to the circularity concept. So how important is circularity in the programs that you're advancing? And can you tell us a little bit more about how you support that?
4: Yeah, sure. So one of those third impact areas of holistic vision to sustainability is that circularity vision. Because even to advance decarbonization, circularity will enable that. Why? Because if we recycle buildings that have a carbon debt still to pay, it means that we are not investing now our carbon budget by knocking down buildings that possibly can be improved. That's one angle. But the other very important angle, Heather, is that as we go about renovating buildings, they can be thought through more holistically through circular solutions, thinking not how do we do it now, but also how are we going to deal with that infrastructure at the end of life? And, for example, we saw in this World Cup a stadium in Qatar that can be fully disassembled after the World Cup is over. So that's the kind of thinking that really closes the loop. And then we are enabling how to use something that maybe wasn't now going to be used in use enable it for a purpose, but also think what is going to happen where we're not using it in the end. Circularity is one of those things that has a lot of political barriers or policy barriers because there is not progressive goals. So that's why we launched this year the Circularity Accelerator at World UBC to make sure that we are understanding the language of what this means. Around the circular economy, there's maybe right now like a lack of alignment in the principles of what good looks like. So, through a coalition and that accelerator, we're collaborating to make that happen and make that a useful conversation for decarbonization, but also to address waste, which is really high in the sector. And the other thing that you've
2: come back to many times is the impact from a socioeconomic standpoint. There are many great initiatives that are being introduced in buildings around the world that are having a positive impact. So can you talk us through some that you feel really stand out in this regard that really help in this area?
4: I think in the run-up to COP27, we collaborated with the high-level climate champions in C40 cities, for example, to put out a climate resilience guide for the built environment. I think that sums it up nicely because we, through the different scales of the built environment, we start first by saying there's at least 3.8 3.8 billion people that today have already suffered from the impacts of climate change. And as we are heading right now towards a scenario of 2.4 degrees of global warming and the trajectory, and we're not on track in decarbonizing the built environment yet, the people-centered approach to that helps us deal with the people that are suffering now and supporting them to be prepared for further distress. So. Actually, in that report, there's a quote that I really like, that I would like to share. And it says, we need to put people and nature first in pursuit of a world resilient to climate change, where we don't just survive climate shocks and stresses, but we thrive in spite of them. So to have those thriving built environment landscapes, it means that we need a lot of collaboration to understand where are the most Vulnerable locations that need priority investments in adaptation, that agenda was high up in COP 27, but still needs more. That includes informal settlements. A billion people today live in informal settlements. It'll go to 2 billion by 2050 if we don't collaborate to do something better. And slums need healthy, clean and safe communities to thrive. Another aspect in this, Heather, is integrating indigenous knowledge and resources to help monitor biodiversity, conservation. Their thinking can help us a lot in understanding and steering away from the millennial thinking and promoting more common sense solutions to the distresses we face, and that's in there. And of course, championing changes in behavior in consumers, in investors, If investors can decide today to not invest any more cents in bad infrastructure. And of course, guidance to communities and how to learn, act, adapt. It's not about humanitarian aid. It's about empowering people to take control of the changing world. And the built environment landscape can do a lot of that. And there's a lot of voices that are coming through the climate activism that are really meaningful for what we can do at a community level.
1: Coming together as a community and including indigenous wisdom in important decision-making can make a massive difference. One part of that is understanding how essential nature is to the human experience. As Christina aptly mentions, we need to put people in nature first in pursuit of a world resilient to climate change. We should be working with nature, not against it, in order to create a more resilient built environment. So let's take things back to Claire for a moment as she thinks back on an important lesson that we can learn from a post-pandemic world. How much better we all feel when we do spend time in nature. The phenomenon is called biophilia and can be defined as the human love for life and living things.
0: I think one of the things that we learned during the pandemic was we feel a lot better when we can get out and get into nature on a regular basis and when you look at some of our office towers historically it's been really difficult to access nature if you're in a hermetically sealed 70 story building what we've seen is when you introduce indoor outdoor space and when you introduce biophilia and you really bring nature into that built environment people are happier and healthier and more relaxed and have a much better day-to-day experience. And that's not just in office buildings, that's everywhere. That's in airports and hospitals and hotels. These are all these places where that sense of biophilia and being in nature and being able to access the outdoors and feel sunlight, all of those are really important for our health. And I think those were lessons that were the, the good things that we learned in COVID was being Being able to have access to nature like that is really, really important and it's really valuable and it's something that we can do as developers in any product type we're building. Doesn't matter what we're building. We can incorporate that if we do it thoughtfully and I think bringing that kind of access to nature to everyone is one of those things that we can do to really engage with growing the health and well-being of uh, the people who occupy our buildings.
2: When thinking about the future, what solutions give you the most hope? What what makes you feel optimistic?
4: What makes me the most optimistic has been the uptake, for example, right now of clean energy solutions, how renewables have dropped in price in a way where they're now cheaper than fossil fuel alternatives. And clean energy is not a commodity. It's a technology. So as we see clean technologies evolve and solutions for the built environment like building management systems, data procurement, transparency, more uptake of environmental product declarations for material systems integration through data, I think, will enable at scale the information to flow to benefit the finance community, consumers, government. And I think that's key. That evolution of decoupling from fossil fuels, from commodities to technologies to power up our systems and making sure that that enables us to reduce demand and and waste in buildings is very promising.
0: The biggest impact that we have on the environment is when we build new buildings, the material that we're using. We've gotten incredibly good with reducing our carbon impact in building operations, regardless of the type of building. We're really, really good at managing the carbon input and the the sustainability from building operations. What we haven't achieved yet is minimizing and reducing and hopefully at some point eliminating the carbon impact of the materials that we use when we build new buildings. So that is looking at building alternative materials, low carbon steel, low carbon concrete, using heavy timber, Changing the way that we build buildings and the materials that we're using to do so, that is the biggest opportunity that we have right now. And to the extent that we can drive innovation in doing, in finding and researching and testing and piloting these new materials, that is going to have more impact than anything else.
1: The earth is home to all of us and it will take us all working together to make it a sustainable place we can pass on to future generations. Just as the Urban Land Institute is helping young scholars see the value of urban planning in their communities and growing a network of companies through GreenPrint to increase accountability for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. As Mayor Turner shared, there's incredible value when civic leadership comes together, knowledge sharing and working hand in hand to find resilient, equitable solutions equipping cities with the tools to collaborate alongside the private sector and make those solutions a reality. Just as the World Green Building Council continues to inspire people-first systemic change at an accelerated rate across a global network, quickly it becomes clear that on the road to a climate-conscious world, some of the greatest things we can build are our relationships with one another. Thank you for listening to this episode. And a special thank you to our guests, Claire Debreer, Mayor Sylvester Turner, and Christina Gamboa for joining us. To learn more about what their respective organizations are doing to foster a more holistic view of sustainability in the built environment, and for links to anything mentioned in the show, head to the show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please be sure to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And join us every episode as we continue to explore shaping sustainable places. This podcast is brought to you by Skenska. We are a world-leading project development and construction group using knowledge and foresight to shape the way we live. Go to skenska.com to learn more. That's S-K-A-N-S-K-A dot com.